1: the heart. All righty. For all you ladies listening out there, and for the men and women who love us, we are talking about share giving. We're talking about what it means to be in a united state of interdependence. My first guest has written a book entitled Share Giving What Women Can Learn from Elephants. I love that title. Deb Witts. is a a licensed clinical social worker and has over 15 years in providing direct services to children and families in North Dakota and Minnesota in child welfare and family therapy. She has taught social work at Minnesota State University, Moorhead, Minot State University, and the University of North Dakota at both the undergraduate and graduate levels for many years. Deb is currently a member of the Quantum Leap program. Deb, welcome. Welcome.
2: you. Tell me about the Quantum Leap program. Because it's so much nicer in Malibu, but I'm glad to be with you on the phone.
1: Oh, you know what? I have been to North Dakota. I think it's pretty nice. there. probably not in the middle of winter, but it is a beautiful place. (laughs) Tell me about the Quantum Leap program.
2: Well, Quantum Leap is an organization that helps people who have some goals, but haven't been able to achieve those goals. And I'm 65 years old, and I have had a couple of books written for oh, 10 or a dozen years and just haven't published them. And so I joined Quantum Leap because I needed some help in sort of directing myself to get them published and, and just keep, keep on with my life goals. So that's what they're helping me do.
1: Fabulous. Is Quantum Leap like a mastermind group?
2: um well i I, i'm not familiar with mastermind so i can't be sure but it is where uh yes people from all over come together to achieve their goals so they support each other and uh there are meetings where people go to get more information and they have a lot of information online so it it happens in multiple uh through multiple arenas
1: Wonderful. Let's talk about your book, Share Giving: What Women Can Learn from Elephants. Why elephants? I'm so
2: curious. Well, uh, actually, as as a 65 year old woman, I have seen a lot of life, and I have, as it, as you said, worked in child welfare. But when I stopped, you know, uh, working full time, I decided, well, I should take a look at what other things I might need to expend some energy on. And I thought, wow, what are we going to do with all these baby boomers? You know, 10,000 people turn 65 years old every day for the next 20 years. 10,000 people a day turn 65. And I started thinking, because I'm a social worker, what are we going to do with all these people? What are (laughs) they going to do with all of us? Where shall I end up? And as I got to thinking about that, of course, what I... What I know is that caregiving ends up on the backs of women. We are the ones who tend to do the majority of caregiving for children. Now, I I realize there are many men who have gotten very involved in that, but still, if you look at the research, there's still the vast majority of caregiving for children is done by, by women, by moms, and we tend to do the majority of caregiving for parents as they grow older. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, women are already busy. We are working full-time, most of us, and we are caring for children. And as all these baby boomers get older, how are women going to manage this? And so I, I, I wondered, how do we do this across species? And wondered if there was a way that I could look at how do other species manage, you know, caring for the elderly. And I stumbled across elephants. And first off, I love elephants because they don't care how big their legs are. They don't care how large their tummies are. They don't care whether they have hair on their chins or how long their noses (laughs) are. And I thought, okay, I like this already, right? What if women didn't care so much about how they physically look? But what became fascinating about elephants is how they are interdependent and how female elephants share all the caregiving with each other. So when babies are born, it isn't just the mom who cares for that baby. It's the mom and all the sisters of that baby and all the aunties of that baby. And it is this large sort of maternal, uh, grouping where everyone cares for everyone else's family. And so it becomes one large extended family. And the older female elephants teach the younger female elephants about the important things they'll need in life, how to care for the babies, uh, how to care for the elderly, uh, where you can uh, get the best food, how you can get to places where there's water. And what I found so fascinating about elephants is that they, they have so many characteristics that humans share. They grieve their dead. They play. They, they mourn, you know, an elephant who leaves them for whatever reason. And I, I just thought they've got something here that women need to be paying more attention to because too often women are trying to do all of this in isolation. So we're trying to take care of our own kids. We're trying to take care of our own parents. Everybody's feeling really isolated. And this is really a fairly new phenomenon, because across human history, uh, people lived in extended families, and women had other women to share those those caretaking responsibilities. So um, I happened to be at a workshop on caregiving that was given by ARP, the uh, Association of Retired People, and I went up to the presenter and said, caregiving is unidirectional. It only goes one way and that means that somebody is always getting more and more isolated, more and more exhausted. You need a different model because the research on caregiving, quite frankly, isn't good. It's hard for the caregiver. And he said, "Well, w- what would be another model?" And I just thought of sharegiving um as a way that we begin to look at how can we come together to care for our kids, to care for the elderly, um, and to to share that in the same way that female elephants do, so that's and, where it came and from.
1: I, and I would also add that also maintaining care for ourselves. That I think that oh. when we're in the caregiving position or the caregiving role, that the first thing that we give up is the self care that is so vital to our ability to stay the course.
2: Which is absolutely the difference between. You know, so often people say, "Well, I want to be independent," as and they think that is the positive model. They think being <laughs> dependent is a negative model, being independent is a positive model, but independence is the other end of the continuum. Both dependence and independence are actually the ends of the continuum in which you will not take care of yourself the middle of that continuum is interdependence. And you're absolutely right. If people are trying to do it by themselves, they can't take care of themselves. And so it's important that we share that giving. And there are many models for how I've done that across my life, where as a single parent, I needed help raising my kids. Uh, even when I was married, I was putting my husband through medical school. And I was working two jobs, so there were there, there just weren't enough hours in the day. So I found models for how I could bring other women into my life in a way that not only helped me, but helped them. And yeah. so I think the sharegiving model is something that people can do, as elephants do, across the life cycle. Well, it, it
1: speaks to the tribe, right? It, it, it used to be generations ago when we lived more in, a, in, in tight-knit, smaller communities or tribal communities that the, the caregiving was shared amongst all the members. It wasn't just, you know, one parent caring for the babies or tending to the elderly. It was done as a community, and everybody was valued in that community for That's each right. role that they, they contributed.
2: That's right. The challenge is that as as marriage has become uh, viewed not as something that you do to share responsibilities, but as a marriage is now seen as something that you do out of romantic love. So then what had, what's become the tribe is that belief that, well, I'm going to get married and my spouse and myself and our children, that'll be our little tribe. The problem is, and, and this is not to say anything negative about those people who are your listeners who are divorced. I've been divorced twice. So it's not, I'm not, you know, casting aspersions, but 50% of marriages end in divorce. And yeah. so what we have are people creating little tiny tribes that then... Unfortunately, too many of those tribes are not surviving, and when they leave that tribe, they don't have those resources that they need.
1: We are going to need to go to a break, and when we come back, we will carry on the conversation with my guest today, Deb Dewitts. To learn more, please visit her website, Deb on life at blogspot.com. The book we are talking about is *Share Giving: What Women Can Learn from Elephants*. You can also connect with her on Facebook at Deborah period DeWitts or Deborah dot DeWitts. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. I love this conversation about elephants. We need to be more like elephants. Here come those tunes. Before we go to that break, I want to mention plate joy, the meal planner that makes healthy eating easy. PlateJoy uses 50 different data points to design custom meal plans that fit your health goals, your taste preferences, and your busy schedule. Instead of getting unhealthy or expensive takeout, cook delicious, healthy recipes without any of the planning. You can even try it for 10 days for free. Visit PlateJoy.com and enter the code HAPPINESS to save $10 on your membership. Once again, that's PlateJoy.com and use the code HAPPINESS to save. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back.
0: We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Before we come back to the show, I want to mention a podcast that I'm listening to
1: and loving, the Success Journal Podcast, which has practical tips to improve your life, enhance your career, make you money, and inspire you. Check out Success Journal Podcast on iTunes and SuccessJournal.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring, and it's also kind, free, legal, available 24-7, and we're talking about the United States of Interdependence, what it means to create community and tribe so we can live and breathe more like the elephants. And my next guest has written a book talking just about that. Deb DeWitts has written Sharegiving, What Women Can Learn from Elephants, and we are talking about what it means to live amongst a tribe and share the burden, load, and, and positive attributes of caring for those that we love. Deb, let's talk about the nuclear family. And, and you, before the break, you talked about the romantic, the romantic outlook of marriage and how sometimes it doesn't measure up.
2: Well, as I said, we do know that the divorce rate unfortunately still runs about 50% and 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 people still believe in marriage because most people marry and in fact most people who get divorced remarry. Uh, unfortunately, the divorce rate for people who remarry with children runs more like 75%. So we have a lot of people who are trying to create that romantic marriage that's going to lead to what they hope and we hope is going to be a long-time forever family, but that's not what's happening and partly that perhaps isn't happening because of that romanticized vision of it's going to be perfect, I'm going to find my soulmate, and people are human, and so we develop at different times, we have different priorities at different times, and so when... And if a divorce happens, too often we don't have those people that we once had. We are a much more mobile society, so people have moved away from extended family, sometimes on purpose. Uh, Or grandma and grandpa are in the south during the winters, and so we don't have that same sense of someone is around to help us out, um, even when we have nuclear families. But certainly following a divorce, it becomes much more significant.
1: I'm thinking back to when I was a child because I was um, the child of a divorced family and my my mother's parents took an extremely active role in my caregiving. I mean, she was the mom, she was raising me, but if my grandparents hadn't been there, she would have been in trouble. You know, the, she they really stepped in to take the lion's share of the load so she could go off and work. And I noticed that in today's divorce families that the grandparents are often often very busy leading their own lives, and they're not available.
2: Well, and partly that's because grandparents are tending to have better health later due to changes in, in medical care, um, but... There are other reasons that that happens as well. Like you said, they're leading their own lives. But in my situation, for instance, I grew up on a farm, which was a wonderful way to grow up, but there are not jobs in those small rural communities. So when I went off to college, my options for where I would live were limited to being in a place where there were jobs. So I raised my kids, even though I had wonderful parents, they lived hours away. And so yeah. I had to find other models for how to raise my children, um, and what I did is, without even realizing it was sharegiving, I began to hire young women to come into my home. Uh, sometimes they would live in my home, and I would offer them free room and board to help care for my children. Uh, other times they didn't live in my home, but I paid them to come into my house every day um, after school to be there with my kids. And... At first, when I started doing that, I thought, well, gee, is this kind of exploitive of these young women? Because certainly they could get a better job. And But when I talked with them, what was interesting is how how much they liked it. So when they would start working for me, we would usually say, well, let's give this a three-month trial period. But all everyone I hired ended up staying for the whole time they were in college. And what they said yeah. was, yeah, maybe this isn't, doesn't pay quite as much as I could get if I were a server. But as a server, I have to work nights. I have to work weekends. I get my uh, body parts touched. And, you know, this is perfect. Nobody's ever drunk here. You know, this is a, a <laughs> wonderful place. And, and I'm still in contact with all the women who once worked for me. So they are people who became part of our family. And when I started writing the book, I actually called some of them and said, "Hey, I'm writing this book. You know, I'm thinking that maybe I'll, I'll include some of what your thoughts are. The young women who worked for me, would you be willing to do that?" And they were very excited and said, "I learned so much by being involved in another family's life. It was great for me. Uh, I learned a great deal." And so it turned out that, that the share giving model was happening even then that they said, I learned from your wisdom, I learned from how you parented your kids. Um, and, And I would have friends who'd say, well, I can't afford that. And yet many of these friends were hiring a cleaning lady who would come in every other week. They'd have to pick up before the cleaning lady got there. And in fact, I wasn't paying any more for someone to come into my home two or three hours a day, and that person, I didn't have to clean up before they got there. Because if there were clothes still on the couch, they'd fold them and put them in the drawers. You know, they were part of the family. They 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 were not separate from the family. And so that model, I just think, has a, a great deal of of value for women to think outside the box.
1: Oh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I have uh, gone through a divorce myself and needed support within my community. To, first of all, it was the emotional support of, of that transition, but also just the, the real physical, tangible support of getting the kids to where they needed to go. This was before they were driving. And I relied upon a community of elders, in my case, that came through a local church that I wasn't even a member of. I just happened to have had a friendship with an older woman of that church, and she brought me into the fold, which got me involved with an active listening program that I'm still very much a part of today. But those women were my lifeline.
2: Well, and that brings up an interesting thing in that, uh, you know, I used this model when I was younger and raising children, but now that I'm 65, I am living in the house that I raised my children in, and all my friends kept saying, oh, you need to downsize, you need to downsize, that house is way too big, and somehow I just felt wrong, and finally I thought, I don't need to downsize, I need to get some Golden Girls. And so that's what I did. I joined the I housing network and uh but, so here we are, uh two or three la- old ladies, I call us old ladies, uh, and they're fine with that. And uh we live here together. They don't want to have the responsibilities of maintaining a house, but they don't want to live in in an apartment. And we share, obviously, since they live here with me, we share expenses, uh, but we share each other's lives. We share our joys, we share our troubles, and it's a wonderful way to live. And so this idea that women can help women, women across the whole lifespan is uh, is just something that I, I really hope people stop thinking, well, I don't want to live with anybody. Because you know what? Every one of my roommates has said, if someone had told me five years ago that I would be living in a situation with roommates, I would have laughed because I would have said, there no way will I ever do that. And yet we all love it.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we are taught to prize our privacy and our independence. And really, what you're calling us to do is to look at this from another perspective of sharing the load. And, and certainly, as we age, which could be a whole other show and unto itself, um, we need to look at other viable ways of aging happily and gracefully and, and, and in a healthy way. And because the model is not just living with your children or living in an, in an old age home, there are lots of congregate Um, environments where people can live out their lives being very active and engaged.
2: That's true. I might say there are some, and maybe there are more where you are, but here, you know, there are some, but there certainly are not enough. And so as I look ahead to people, and, and what are we going to do as we age, I think that the only solution I can see is ultimately We are going to be living three-generationally again. There won't be enough. Somebody said, well, we'll just build more nursing homes. And I said, there's not going to be enough money to build that many nursing homes. And even if we could build that many, even if we could pay for the care, who's going to work in them? So we aren't going to have enough workers. So... I think this is going to be something that's going to affect not just women, but I think families are going to come back together again, and we need to start talking about that not as the worst option, not as, oh, no, that would be horrible, but as, that could be great.
1: I, I agree. Great. I, and, and there there are multigenerational um, projects in California, in Southern California, and then as you travel up north and in the Pacific Northwest, I think is another area where you've got people who buy into these um, communities and you've got younger people who are having kids that you know maybe don't have parents that are around and you've got right. older people who have moved in that don't have big families and then you've got sort of a natural built-in way of living where these beautiful families of choice are created.
2: That's right. That's right. And what I'm trying to get people to do is to recognize that they can create that in many ways without having to be part of an already established community. So they can start thinking about, how can I do this in my own home? How can I do this with my own family? Because not all of us are going to be able to get into that other situation.
1: Agreed. I mean, they don't have the resources, or and also it does require some some money to sustain this kind of living, which is a whole other conversation. But you, it sounds like you are doing this with your golden girls too. I mean, they're they're a group of peers at this point, but it may change at another. Maybe you'll have you'll go back to having a college student in your home because it feels well, as good. Matter of
2: fact, I've told my children that whoever wants to buy the house um, someday. I am the encumbrance that comes with it. And they and they both said, yeah, we know that. Yeah, that's great. So, <laughs> yep, it's already planned.
1: Yeah, I, I, and it's important to have that conversation with kids. Yeah. I know I've done it with mine. It sounds like you've done it with yours, but it's not a comfortable conversation because, yeah. A, we don't like to think of ourselves becoming old and perhaps one day, incapacitated, and for the kids, nobody wants to see their parent as old and unable to care for themselves.
2: Yep, but you are absolutely right. It is a very important conversation. Very important.
1: Deb, Deb Dewitz, thank you for joining us. Um, the book, once again, is Sharegiving, What Women Can Learn from Elephants. To learn more about Deb DeWitts and her work, please visit her at debdewittsonlife at blogspot.com and on Facebook, you could find her at Dot. Thank you so much, Deb.
2: Thank you so much, and I hope we get to chat again.
1: We will. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that is a promise.
0: Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. We're continuing on talking about
1: what it means to be a hero or heroine or shiro. No, no matter what you term the phrase "there are women who we look up to, uh, who are unrecognized, or in the cases, uh, in the case of w- Wonder Woman, who is recognized and revered." And my next guest is, is has written several books, but her latest book, "The Alice Network," a novel, is about some of these unsung heroines, the forgotten female spies of World War One. But I want to set this up and introduce you to my guest, Kate. Quinn, who is a native of Southern California, she attended Boston University, where she earned a bachelor's and master's degree in classical voice. She is a lifelong history buff and has written four novels in the Empress of Rome saga and two books in the Italian Renaissance detailing the early years of the infamous Borgia clan all translated into multiple languages. She and her husband now live in Maryland with two black dogs named Caesar and Calpurnia. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here.
1: Well, delighted to talk with you about several things. Firstly, to research for a historical novel is a monumental process. Talk a little bit about that and how specifically it relates to the unsung heroines that we're speaking of in your novel.
3: Research always is ongoing whenever you write and it's the fun part as well as the hard part. So it's both, but it's a matter of trying to find these stories that are the unsung women of the past and trying to find where these people have disappeared in the cracks and then going on a treasure hunt to look for them. And it, it's something I find wonderfully satisfying, because trying to layer history and a and fiction together, it's a bit like a Dr. Frankenstein procedure. You take the historical fact, which is the bones, and history never leaves you a complete record. There are always gaps, so you might be missing a few bones here and there. You don't get a complete skeleton. But then you have to layer in, you know, the story on top of the facts, like muscle and flesh on top of bones. And then at the end, what you have is something that you know hopefully comes to life. <laughs>
1: And in your new book, The Alice Network, you've done this with these female spies. Talk a little bit about the the cultivation of the characters. And what I find so interesting about this book is um, the characters come to life at or about the time that Wonder Woman uh, rises
3: I did find that was a wonderful coincidence, and I can't wait to see Wonder Woman, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the Alice Network in real life was a ring of spies in World War I, many of the women, who risked their lives facing death by firing squad from their German enemies and facing from their own side quite a bit of condescension and double standards as women who were daring to fight in a man's war. And this very much became to me the power of women joining forces against the war and the world and all the odds against them. This is about women who will not be beaten. And, you know, when you talk about Rosie the
1: Riveter, right, because this is about the same time of Rosie's, Rosie's Rising, um, these women engaged in spy tactics. Were they using their sexuality as their weapons of choice?
3: That was something that I think was always a possibility, but it's been very much glamorized by Hollywood. We think now of James Bond legend, the spy with, you know, the gun in her garter and, you know, the brothel of secrets, you know, who's seducing men and getting their secrets out of them. Real spying, though, was quite a bit less glamorous and were probably safer the less noticed you were. So rather than being, you know, the center of all eyes at a cocktail party in a couture gown, the spy would be better off serving the canapes and going completely unnoticed as she files away all the gossip. Now, it's not to say that women didn't cross those lines. Of course, sometimes they had to. But it was something that they would be very much advised to keep to themselves because there was a real sexual double standard for women in intelligence because – As I said, you know, this was before the James Bond myth gave spying glamour. And it was seen as a bit of a dirty business and dishonorable. And if women were going to engage in it, they had to not be dishonorable in other ways. And I found these interesting bits from men in British intelligence who were very careful to say things like, oh, you know, our our female sources were ladies. They would never cross those lines. So I think women on the ground would have been more realistic about what sometimes has to be done to get the job done. But they knew that if they were caught in that kind of position or if it were found out, they would probably face censure from their own side. Mm, mm.
1: Fascinating. Talk a little bit about um, your style of writing. You know, uh, uh, writing from a perspective in the ancient world and then jumping ahead to the 20th century. How does the time travel fare for you as the author? Uh,
3: The biggest difference I found is that when you're looking at the ancient world, far less surviving material exists, which does give a novelist more room to play. It means that there's more gaps to fill in. Whereas we're in the modern era, with the 20th century a much more recent past, you have much more surviving material. A lot more is known, which means there are more things you can get wrong, so you have to be careful with your research. But at the same time, I found that there are things that were very similar. And the fact is is that in the end, this is not stories of dead ghostly people. These are stories about real, breathing human beings. And they faced many of the same problems that women continue to face today, whether they were in ancient Rome or Renaissance Italy or in World War I or Two, There are still problems that are universal. And this is what I hope people will take away from it.
1: Talk a little bit about the main characters in the Alice Network, because there are two And they each have very interesting stories.
3: Well, the book opens with a young girl named Charlie. She's an American college student, and she's in a pickle because she's pregnant and unmarried. That's a big problem in 1947. And she's also battling some problems internally. She has a cousin who she loved like a sister who disappeared in Nazi-occupied France, never been seen since, and is dying to find her and find out what happened to her. This search is going to end up leading her to the doorstep of Eve, who is an absolute battle-axe of a woman who is not interested in being disturbed. But we jump back in time to the world, First World War, where we see the young Eve, and we see her being recruited to work as a spy in the Alice Network. And there the stories unravel, you see young Eve entering the espionage world and becoming the woman that she is in the World War II story where she's haunted by things that went wrong and looking still for old enemies. And she and Charlie realize that they may have the same enemy and that they are going to have to join forces if they are going to see redemption and resolution.
1: Fascinating. Talk a little bit about um, their journey together. You know, how do you see uh, that this is emblematic of the plight of women regardless of the period of time that we're living in? Because these, these these themes repeat themselves.
3: Well, they realize as their journey continues, and they are not friends to start with. They're very prickly. They have nothing in common, not a generation, not a war, not a nationality, nothing. And they realize, though, that they have faced echoes of similar things in their lives they have both in their ways had to deal with loss in wartime they've both had to deal with the damage emotionally that happens after wars they've both had to deal with being judged as women for the sexual choices that they make they've both Mm -hmm. had to deal with the fear of pregnancy and this is just the start of the things that they have shared in common experiences that have spanned both timelines, and I'm hoping it will also span the timeline—a third timeline that includes the reader, because these are the similar problems that women still face today, and there is not necessarily any more of a resolution than there was for Charlie and even their times.
1: Indeed, and, and, and so the story goes, and, and history continues to repeat itself. But this is the importance of of the rising heroine, which you also depict in the book we're going to take a break and when we come back we are going to continue the conversation with kate quinn the author of the alice network her new novel to learn more you can visit her at kate on twitter at kate quinn author, and on facebook it's a little bit different it's kate dot five four nine here comes the break we'll be right back and that is a promise
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome
1: back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. And our content is kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7. And today, we are talking about heroines and uh with me in the studio today is Kate Quinn who is the author of the Alice Network a novel and we're talking about some of the characters in her book The Unsung Heroines The Forgotten Female Spies of World War 1 so Kate prior to the break we talked a little bit about um the you know, jumping from, from millennia to millennia in your writing, talking about researching, um, let's talk a little bit more about – you. you call it faking it until you make it. Talk a little bit about that in terms of the research for the book.
3: Well, research for a book I always think has four stages. First of all, you're not even sure what you want, to, what story you want to tell, so you're reading away about everything under the sun. This is the part where you grossly overuse the Amazon one-click-buy button, and the customers who bought X also bought Y. <laughs> <laughs> this part is a dog paddle. It's fun. It's just lazy dog paddling through history looking for tidbits. A uh, second stage is when you have your history, your, your history, uh, in a deep dive. You're learning everything about this particular historical epoch that you can find. And it's easy to get lost here because really you can never know everything. You can never know enough. But at some point you do have to start writing. Next stage I would think of as a fast patch where you realize you can't continue to even the next paragraph as you write unless you have looked up one particular historical fact and found it and made your jump to more well-researched historic ground to continue your story. That's where you're looking, for, and you can hopefully find it and keep going. And then, final stage and the absolute worst is the rabbit hole, and that's where you're frantically fact-checking everything you can find because you're paralyzed with fear that you got something wrong. Oh my! And 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 how do you sit down to write? What's your
1: methodology? Are you a daily writer? Do you set aside um, periods during the week? What is what is your routine?
3: Well, everyone's routine is different, and everyone has something that will work for them. Um, I found I work best when I can get up, go to the gym, walk the dogs, and then after that, uh, once I've got the afternoon, I can settle down and work pretty much all afternoon. And as long as I have an endless pot of coffee and two sleeping dogs with me on the couch next to the laptop, I'm pretty well good to go. So I like writing every day or at least five days a week. And there's always a certain amount of business, too, you know, emails, social media and so forth. So it's definitely not just the writing part, but you try to get it all in. And most of the writers I know are the busiest people I know. So somehow we're all trying to make that juggle happen.
1: Well, it's, it's quite a discipline to write a book, as I know myself, is a very, very disciplined journey. Talk a little bit about um, what resonates for you. What gives rise to the heroine within you as you connect with these characters when you write?
3: Well, I have to find female characters and male characters, too, of course, whoever is my protagonist. But I have to find people I admire and people I would like to be. And I want women who are about more than just their love lives. I want women who have passions, who have you know, priorities, who have selflessness for causes and things that are not just only interested in women's roles. And I want to find these women in history, and you can find them. It takes a little bit of digging sometimes, but you can find the places where women like that lived. And it's always amazing to me to see how in eras past where we think all women were confined to certain domestic roles that there were women who were breaking the mold and they were finding ways to do that and living extraordinary lives. And those are the people I'm interested in. And those are the ones I want to always share with people who love books. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they they are they are there in history. It's funny, I was speaking with a group of young adults last week, and they were talking about the mothers and fathers of invention. And they were rattling off name after name after name of men, because they're the ones that received the most um, um, accolades and press, and they were hard, hard pressed to really speak of women in this position and we began talking about that saying that they really are there they are there in history and they go back to the beginning of time it it, they're just more quiet about it also
3: and unfortunately a lot of the times especially you see this in in um, areas like invention or science they get their credit taken or it is their credit is assigned elsewhere and therefore they don't have the credit that they deserve but you know fortunately we're seeing a bit more of a swing now i mean look at the recent success of hidden figures which is bringing to life the african american women who are working in the space race you know this is something i knew about because my husband is a um, astro is an astrophysicist in his spare time as far as a enthusiasm for astronomy but it was something that is not broadly known really and um Really, it was delightful to see how much success that movie got. I hope we see more like it.
1: I do, too. That, that, and that movie was great fun and, and, and truly heartfelt. Talk a little bit about the little-known massacre of Orador. It's Orador-sur-Glan?
3: Sur Is that how you pronounce yes, it? Orador-sur-Glan. Sur-Glan. Um, that was a little-known tragedy of World War II. It's much better known in France because... It, the town exists to this day, and it's a ghost town. It is completely empty, and it has old buildings, which are marked by the signs of fire and bullets, and but there are no people. And the trouble as far as things going down there was that a German SS regiment decided there was resistance activity in the town. We're not exactly sure and they moved in and they massacred everyone there they herded women and children into a church and then and then they massacred the men in surrounding buildings and barns and it was a tragedy that was in many ways subsumed into the larger journeys like the concentration camps it was the fate of one small village but it was really quite appalling and it's still a monument to this day because that village was ordered to let stand just these bullet pocked buildings and fire scarred walls that tell you what happened. There, there is a cameo, as it were, of Oradur Sir Glenn that will appear in the Alice Network, and I was quite haunted by a lot of the photos.
1: You know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Uh, a few years back, I had gone to Dubrovnik, and I would say that they have done a very good job there of preserving that part of history, in its most recent wars, you can see a lot of the buildings um, retain the the bullet holes and and the spoils of war in the architecture. And it's done so intentionally because we don't want to forget. It's important that we not forget, and it's too easy to do so.
3: It is. And I always thought that was a wonderful thing about one of the cathedrals in Paris, you'll see, where a number of the gargoyles were beheaded during, I believe, the French Revolution, and I liked it that they restored some of them, but then they left some of them beheaded because they didn't want people to forget that this damage had happened, and you'll still see it when you go there.
1: Talk about uh, the untold suffering of occupied France in World War I, because not many people may know about this.
3: World War One had a huge impact on northern France, which was occupied for four years. And it's something that you have to understand if you're going to understand the French in World War Two. And it's because the French get a lot of flack for surrendering to the Germans too easily. But what people often don't understand is everyone in France especially the north would have had these enormous emotional scars and wounds and memories just 30 years in the past from the last time
1: Kate I have to say you have whetted our appetites to learn more about your book and to explore the unsung heroines the forgotten female spies of World War 1 in your latest novel The Alice Network thanks for joining us to learn more please visit Kate Quinn author.com once again you can find her at kate Quinn on twitter at kate Quinn author on facebook at kate
0: thanks for joining us on harvesting happiness talk radio with lisa cypress cayman join us each and every wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on TokiNet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.